Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by exalting the glory of God, sharing and showing the love of Christ, and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now here's this week's message. Uh, But they're kind of going to set the tone for our discussion this morning uh, because we're really talking about God's call on Abraham, and we're looking at the life of Abraham, but also God's call on our life uh, as well. So I wanted to share a couple of verses from Romans, uh, and this is the complete Jewish Bible version. In the book of Romans, Paul, Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which has Jewish people in it, it has Greek people in it, it has people from all over the world. If you could imagine, uh, you know, Paul writing a letter to, you know, the church in Washington, D.C., where there are people from all over the world, or uh, into downtown Pittsburgh, uh, where there are people from all the students from all over the world. Uh, as he's writing this letter, this is what he writes. He says, uh, then what should we say, Abraham, and that's, it's Abraham with a B, but this is the complete Jewish Bible version. Uh, Abraham, our forefather, obtained by his own efforts. And the reason he's writing this is because there were a group of people inside the church, uh, even though they were, you know, they committed their lives to Jesus Christ, they were still Jewish, so they were like, what about the law? What about all these things that, you know, are in the Old Testament that it said we had to do? We have to follow those things. Uh, so they were kind of like reluctant to believe that it's just faith in Jesus Christ alone because their whole life uh, and their whole culture was built around following and adhering to all these other things. Uh, so then Paul writes to them in response to that, says then, what should we say, Abraham, our forefather, obtained by his own efforts? Uh, and he says, for if Abraham came to be considered righteous by God because of legalistic observances, then he has something to boast about. But that's not how it is before God. So what he's telling them is, hey, if Abraham was able to be in right standing by God by doing all of these things, you know, obeying all of these things, even though the law didn't exist at that time, uh, didn't exist until Moses uh, revealed it to the people because God revealed it to Moses. But he says if Abraham had been in right standing with God, then it would be all about Abraham, right? Abraham would have something to boast about because he's like, I did this, I did this, I did this, and this is how I got to heaven, or this is how, you know, I got into a relationship with God, or this is how I got in right standing with God. Uh, but Paul says that's not how God works. And I had a conversation with someone, and I can't remember who, uh, it was a while back, uh, and they were, this is what they said. They basically said, I don't understand why, you know, someone who is a good person gives money to charity, volunteers, does good things, is nice to everyone, why can't they get into heaven? And that was their comment. I don't understand why. And my comment was, because that's not how it works. That's not how God determines who gets into heaven, how good you are. It's kind of like asking if someone said, hey, I don't understand why I drove for like 10 hours straight on 51 headed south, but I never reached Erie. Because that's not how you get to Erie. You're doing the wrong thing, going in the wrong direction. You're never going to reach Erie that, unless you somehow go all the way around the world and come all the way back, if that works. Uh, but you're never going to get there. That's not the way you get there. And the same is true. That's not how God determines who is in right standing with him or how you get into heaven. But then Paul goes on and he explains it. He says, for what does the Tanaka, which is the law, say? Abraham put his trust in God, and it was credited to his account as righteous. In other words, he says it's not about 
doing all these things that get you into right standing with God. And he, he, I'm glad that he addresses Abraham because in the Jewish mindset, that was the, the, the founding father of the Jewish faith. And I like the fact that he uses the Bible to talk to people because a lot of people, uh, I don't know about you, I get people that quote things that aren't in the Bible to me as if they were in the Bible all the time. And this week I had a conversation with someone uh, because we were talking about, you know, you know the, whether or not the law gets you into heaven. And someone said, well, the early Testament church, they didn't worry about that. The New Testament church didn't worry about observing the law. All they knew was Jesus Christ crucified. They knew nothing about the law. And my response was, but the scripture says that Paul had to write to them because they were trying to say, and they used the term in the Bible, the Judaizers, who were saying that, yeah, you can still get to heaven by obeying the law. And as a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, it says, Paul went into the synagogues and shared the gospel with the Jewish people, and many of them were converted. So there were a lot of Jewish people who did know the law. So I, I love the fact that Paul uses the Bible to try to say to those people who are, we got to obey the Bible, well, you're not really obeying it. Because he says, and he's quoting from Genesis chapter, I think it's 15, he says that Abraham put his trust in God. That's what made him righteous in God's eyes. Not anything that he did, not, not any list that he tried to obey, right? Uh, now, I bring that up because that's not wholeheartedly our focus this morning. Our focus this morning is the fact that, you know what? Abraham did put his trust in God, and God used him and called him, even though Abraham had all kind of issues. Like, Abraham is probably one of the most, there's not a kid-friendly word I can use other than messed up people in the Bible. He had issues. He had family issues. Uh, he did a lot of things right. He did a lot of things wrong. Uh, he wasn't all good. He wasn't all bad. He was just like us. Some things, yeah. Some days we're like, yeah, I did this great. I did this good thing. Called on God. Yep. Other days, we kind of mess some stuff up. We stumble. We fall. We make mistakes. We hurt people unintentionally. We say things we shouldn't have. We post things we shouldn't have. But God still uses us. And God can still call us. And here's the thing. Uh, God only had one thing that he wanted Abraham to do. Go have some kids. That's all I want you to do. Like take Sarah, take her out to Red Lobster, go home, put on some mood music. Okay, kids are in the room. Sorry. But just go. That's all I want you to do. Go have some kids. And he messed that up. But God still called him, and God still used him uh, to do the things that God wanted to do. Because uh, just like he used him, even though Abraham had issues, God still calls us. He can still use us, whether it be to share the gospel, whether it be to be there for someone, to help someone in our community, in our family, our neighbors. Uh, God still wants to use us too. And we're not perfect. And it's not because we're doing all these things right. It's because we put our faith and our trust in God. So um, here's what I want you to do. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 12, and we're going to cover a lot of chapters today um, that we're not going to rush through, but we're not going to go through a lot of detail uh, because we're going to cover a lot of chapters. 
But if you turn to Genesis chapter 12, and we talked a little bit about this last week, the call of Abraham. Uh, and in some of your Bibles, uh, this, it may have a, a heading that says Abraham and Egypt. In some of your Bibles, it may not. But starting in verse 10, this is what we read. There was a famine in the land, and Abram, he was still Abram at this time, even though I'm calling him Abraham because that's what we're accustomed to. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. But as we, every husband says that to his wife. But he goes on and he says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. And the reason he says this is because at that time, uh, they valued marriage so high that there was the concept of cheating on your spouse inconceivable. The only way that could happen is if you killed the other person. And then you could, you know, then it was a single woman that you could go after. And so he says, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So his view of marriage kind of messed up at the time. He was all about self-preservation. Verse 14, when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. Now understand at this time she was in her 60s. I think she was 65, right? And there was a combination, uh, Peter tells us, and I think it's First Peter, of, of not just outward beauty, but also inward beauty. The way that she carried herself. It wasn't that she was dressed seductively and, and had lots of gold and makeup and all that stuff. It was an inward beauty, the way that she carried herself, the way that she looked at Abraham, as well as probably the outward beauty that the officials looked at her, went back to Pharaoh and said, oh, you got to see this woman. And then she was taken into his palace, and he treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. So he allowed his wife to be taken into the home of someone else, and he got a lot of stuff for that. And this goes back to what we've talked about multiple times before, just the disrespect of how women were viewed instead of the way God wanted them viewed as partners, as equals, as helpmeets. But because of sin, they were viewed as less than and as property and as someone who didn't matter. And that's the way that Abraham viewed his wife. And that may be one of the reasons why God, you know, uh, God said, I'm going to, you know, just go back. I just want you to have kids with Sarah, and I'm going to work through that because she was barren. And maybe that's one of the reasons God didn't make that happen yet, is because their family wasn't quite ready because of the way Abraham viewed family at that time. Now, the next thing uh, that uh, Moses tells us is in chapter 13, where He's talking about Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, right? And Lot was uh, um, uh, the son of, I think, Haran, who had passed away. No, Nahor, who had passed away. And so then when, when they moved, Abraham took Lot with him. But then they got to the point where they had so much stuff. You know, Lot had his camels and sheep and all that, and, and Abraham had all his, uh, that Abraham was like, look, the land, there's only so much land right here for us to stay together we got to split up. So he said to Lot, you get to choose. You choose where you go, and then I'll go the other way so that we can continue and have our businesses, for lack of a better term, you know, thrive. 
It's not like here where you go one block and there's a Burger King, the next block there's a McDonald's. You know, they were doing the sheep thing, so it was like, you do your business over there, wherever you pick, I'm gonna go in the opposite direction so that our businesses can thrive. And this is where Lot chose. Um, chapter 13, it says, Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. And now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And uh, but just because of time, I won't focus on this today, but we're going to come back to this um, after Easter and talk about it. Uh, because if, if you guys are familiar with the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, everyone familiar with that? Yeah, if, if, if you're thinking about why would God destroy a whole city, there's got to be a reason. And although most people will tell you it had to do with sexual immorality, that's not the only reason. Uh, there was a level of wickedness and, and just evil and violence that was going on. Uh, that was unprecedented since before the flood. Uh, but we'll come back and talk about that in a couple of weeks. And so uh, after they split up and, and he moved to, to Sodom, uh, let me jump back into Genesis chapter 14. Turn over to verse chapter 14. And, and I'm going to read through these names, but don't, you don't have to memorize these, but just to give you a little bit of background, uh, Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedor Laamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adamer, and Shemaber, king of Zoboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. We will all forget that by the time this salvation is over. But here's what happens. Jump over to verse 11. The four kings that were fighting against uh, uh, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's, or Abram's, nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And what had happened was before he was living near Sodom. Kind of like if you're, if you're in downtown Pittsburgh, you head out of one of the tunnels, go about a mile or two, and you'll see homes all around. He was outside of the city but near it. But over time, he progressed to living inside the city. But in verse 13, it says, One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were ally, allied with Abram. So when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. See, what he had was um, these are the men, not just all the men that he gained when he was in Egypt, because when he was in Egypt, you know, he sold out his wife, but then God spoke to Pharaoh and said, hey, you know what? That's a married woman. You shouldn't even have anything to do with her. And then the Pharaoh went to Abram and said, hey, why did you lie to me? And Abram said, I thought you were going to kill me. And so the Pharaoh said, here, take your wife. Here's even more men, more lamb, more sheep, more gold, more stuff. Now just get away from us. So he left with a lot of stuff. But here he takes only those men who are loyal to him because he's asking them to put their lives on the line. Verse 16, uh, he recovered all the goods, brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And for, for somehow, he got it in his mind, and maybe it was because God had to intervene to bring Sarah back to him. He got it in his mind that, hey, when it comes to family, some family is worth fighting for. 
I mean, obviously, he should have thought that when it was his wife. And probably, I don't know about you, but probably some of us have family. There's families that we love, we talk to daily, weekly, monthly, we text, send you know, pictures to, post things with, laugh at one another. But there's probably other family members who, uh, you know what, I just got to love them from afar. I'm not going to you know, go and, 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 and poke the bear, for lack of a better term, because we're not getting along that great anyway. But even those family members are worth fighting for because that's what God does for us. The people that, that love God and, and we want to hear from him and we show up at church on Sunday morning to worship him, God says, yeah, I love you. But those people who want nothing to do with him while he respects them, he doesn't force himself on them, guess what? He loves those people as well. And he died for those people as well. And he fought for those people as well. And he uses us to reach those people uh, as well. So all of those members uh, are worth fighting for. Now, after all of this happens, uh, turn over to chapter 15. God sits down and he has a conversation with Abram. And over and over, um, if, we, if we have read in more detail, over and over, he reinforces, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And here, he says, let's make this covenant binding. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward, which is something we should all take to heart. That word shield means a protector or defender. And that word reward means exactly what we think it was. Reward, treasure, something of value. That's what God is to us. When people are coming against us, God is our protector. When people were coming against Jesus and beating him and literally stripping his skin off of his back, he didn't, like, verbally go back at them. He gave it up to God. And the reward that we get when we put our faith and trust in God is bigger than any tangible financial reward that you can imagine. Now jump over to verse, um, down to verse 9. And the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these things to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds he didn't cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but he drove them away. Now, verse 12, we're going, to see, we're going to start to see something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, how they uh, kept the covenant. Verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, which came true in the book of Exodus. He says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, which was Egypt. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And when God sent Moses, after Moses had been in the desert, he said, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Because every time we do that, we think of the Charlton Heston version. Uh, let my people go. And Moses said to God, you know what? They're not going to listen to me. And God said, go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And go tell my people to go ask their neighbors to give them stuff to give them clothes, to give them gold, to give them jewels. And Moses is like, God, you're, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. And then in verse tw chapter 12 of Exodus, when the people left, after all the plagues, the plagues were so severe, two things happened. Some of the people in Egypt said, look, 
you guys are weird. You're the cause of all these plagues. Here's money. Here's clothes. Just get out of town. We want nothing to do with you. Other people said, you guys, your God is God. And he deserves to be worshipped. Here's clothes. Here's gold. Here's stuff. Go and worship your God. And some were like, we want nothing to do with you. We reject you. While others were like, we want to worship your God. I can't leave and go with you. But your God is God. And then verse 15 you, however, now God's talking to Abraham, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What God meant was, I'm going to be patient with them because they're sinful people too. They need to be punished, but I'm going to be patient with them. And we'll get to that uh, in a couple of weeks. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And what you have is what we talked about weeks ago. In order to have a covenant, they would, they would take animals, and they would cut them in half, and then both parties would walk between the animals, basically saying, hey, let this happen to me if either one of us violates this covenant. Let me be cut in half. And now the smoking fire pot uh, represented God walking between those animals. And it wasn't something that God said, as far as we know, biblically, this is the way you do, you do a covenant. This is something that the people came up with, but God honored it. And said, if this is your understanding of how a covenant is going to be entered into, then I want you to know that I'm entering into a covenant with you. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Kedamonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So God had kept saying, hey, I'm going to do this covenant. I'm going to do this covenant. I'm going to make a covenant with you. And then finally, he said, hey, here is us doing the covenant. And even though that God... Abraham had issues, God still used him and was willing to say, I'm willing to make a covenant with you. And oddly enough, the covenant was, hey, I'm going to give you descendants more than the sand on the seashore, right? And it's going to be through Sarah. And God knew through that union, I'm going to bring the Messiah. But the next thing that we read is that he kind of messed that up. Because here's Here's what happens. God called and used Abraham despite his issues, just like he calls and uses us despite our issues. But even after God calls us, even after we become Christians, even after we commit our lives to Christ, you don't have to raise your hand, we could still make mistakes, right? We could still mess stuff up. We could still refuse to trust God in certain situations. We can still not heed God's calling. We can still treat people like they don't matter. We can still talk to people like they don't matter. And immediately after, God has this really spiritual interaction with Abraham. Abraham messes up. So I'm going to put these last verses up on the screen. Because the next thing we read is in Genesis chapter 16, and many of you guys are familiar with this account. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar, probably came into their household during their time in Egypt, given by the Pharaoh. 
And Sarai said to Abraham, see here, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. So I'm asking you to have intercourse with my maid. It may be that I can obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to and heeded what Sarah said. God just went through this very spiritual thing where he said, go get these animals, walk between them. The way that you, humanity, uh, do a covenant, uh, if he were talking to us today, he would say, go get your lawyers, go get the contract, go get one of those nice little golden pens that are, you have to dip in the ink with a little feather on the end so we can sign the contract. That's the way that you do it. I'm willing to say, according to this contract, that I am going to give you descendants. And the next thing that we see It's Sarah saying, it's God who has kept me from having descendants. And Abraham saying, yeah, that's true. Now, I don't know if he was saying so much that's true to that or so much true to, you know, hooking up with the maid, but whatever the reason is, they didn't trust God. But God still honored what they did. Because what happened was uh, Hagar got pregnant, and once she got pregnant, even though she was like the housekeeper of the maid, she started getting a little bit snooty with Sarah, you know, because Sarah's like, hey, make sure you clean that, and uh, Hagar was like, well, I'm a little bit pregnant, and you're a little bit not, so maybe you should clean it yourself, and Sarah was like, oh, really? Get out, and she kicked her out. She's like, Abraham, I'm not putting up with this. Do something about it. I am kicking her out. And again, Abraham said, okay. And it wasn't like, hey, you know, put her on a bus or whatever. It was like he gave her literally, here's some water to drink, a bottle of water, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, out into the desert you go. I don't know if it was peanut butter and jelly, but out into the desert you go. And then this is what we find happens. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and humbly submit to her control. Also, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be numbered for multitude. In other words, you're not the one who I'm going to use, but I'm going to honor what I said. And I told Abraham I would give him descendants that can't be numbered, but I meant through Sarah. But since they took it on their own to do it through you, I'm going to honor that, and I'm going to give you descendants that can't be numbered. Now, the angel of the Lord typically is a phrase when you see it with a capital A and a capital L that refers to what they call either a theophany or a Christophany, meaning the angel of the Lord, the word angel means messenger. So uh, literally it would mean a messenger of the Lord or a messenger of God. And some, most theologians, and I I believe this as well, depending on what the angel or the messenger from God does, uh, a lot of them believe it was either God in the flesh or Jesus Christ in the flesh showing up before he was born as a baby uh, in the New Testament. And the way that you can tell whether it was a regular, no, it's just a regular old angel, or it was either God in the flesh or Christ in the flesh is on what the angel did. And here the angel is saying that I am going to multiply your descendants. Angels don't have that power. God has that power. Jesus Christ has that power. Angels don't have the power to multiply your descendants. The same promise that God made to Abraham is what the angel is making here, which is why uh, they believe it was 
what you will call a Christophany or a theophany. And we end up finding out that, yeah, they, she goes back. They have their hardships. She has the baby. His name is um, Ishmael. And God multiplies him into what we now know as the Arab nation. But here's the thing. God knows that we have issues. He knows that we're going to mess some stuff up. He knows that we're not always going to get it right. And he still calls us to follow him, to trust him. And I think one of the reasons why Moses highlights all of these uh, one step up, where Abraham's doing something great, one step back, where Abraham's messing something up. One step up, where he's doing something great, and then one step back, where he's messing something up, is because that's like us. But when we take one step up and do something great, we're like, yeah, God, you can use me. I'm ready to be used by you. But when we take one step back, we're like, okay, I guess God is done with me. And God isn't. He knows that we have issues. He knows that we're going to mess things up. He knows that we're going to make mistakes. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to take a moment and just think about maybe mistakes that you have made. Take a moment and think about um, a time in your life, whether it be recently, maybe it was not so recent, um, maybe you're awesome enough to where it's been a long time since you've made a mistake. But for some of us, it might have been yesterday where we said something to someone that we shouldn't have. It might have been last week where we responded in anger instead of love. It might have been last night where uh, instead of showing the love of Christ, we let our humanity jump in in a way that we responded to a post or a text or a family member or a loved one. And maybe in that moment we're thinking, okay, well, God can't really use me anymore because I've screwed up. And God says, I'm still calling you to do the one thing that God asks every person to do. Share the love of Christ with those people in your circles of influence. I want you to bow your heads for a moment and uh, I want to pray, God, before we leave out of here this morning, I want you to speak to our hearts. Whether we've, we've, we've made mistakes last week, whether we made them last night, whether we made them this morning, whether we acted out of anger, whether we acted out of ignorance, whether we did something majorly wrong, bordering on criminal, or something that we would consider minor, just bordering on insignificant. No matter what that thing is, just acknowledge that we are still loved by you. That you still love us. That you still care about us. And that you gave your son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to show us that love. Don't let us leave here without acknowledging your amazing love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to close out with a song, but before we do, I'm going to ask you guys to do this. Um, these psalms, psalms, I keep saying psalms, palms uh, that were handed out. If you didn't have one, grab one. Uh, here's what typically happens most Palm Sundays. 
we're like, ooh, and ah, and we're waving them around. And then we take them home, or we throw them in the trash on the way out. <laughs> That's typically what happens. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because when they laid these psalms down, um, they were literally saying, save us. That's what they were looking to Jesus Christ for. Save us, save us. And he did. He gave his life not just for them, but for all humanity. And he knew that the same people that were laying these down before him yelling, save us, would be the same people in the crowd without these, but raising their fists saying, crucify him. And he died for them anyway. So I'm going to ask you, instead of throwing these in the trash, to take these home, set them on the dresser, just for one week, just until the Monday after Easter. And every single time that you look at this, besides thinking it doesn't go with anything in my bedroom, besides thinking that, look at it and think, you know what? This is a reminder that Jesus died for me, knowing every mistake I would make, knowing every issue I have, knowing all the problems I'm still going to cause that I haven't caused yet. And he still looked at me and said, I'm worth dying for. And if he did that for me, the least I can do is be just like Abraham and continue to put my faith and my trust in him. Don't just throw these away. Let them be a reminder of God's love for you. Amen. God, we thank you for, again, your saving grace. We thank you for leading us, not because of what we've done or what we've achieved in our own strength, but because of what you did for us, allowing your son to give his life for us. And we pray as we said, that we acknowledge that we're not perfect, that we acknowledge that we make mistakes, but we also pray we would acknowledge that you love us anyway and call us to follow you, to put our faith and our trust in you, and to share the gospel with those in our circles of influence. We pray that's what we would do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. 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 Thank you guys. Pray you have an awesome rest of your week. God bless and see you next week.